Bom, eu ainda vou falar, apesar da gente ter mudado de espaço, uma breve apresentação do Zizek. Now, a brief introduction of Zizek. A segunda ou terceira conferência que vocês estão assistindo. Maybe it's not the second or the third conference that you're watching. He was born in 1949 in the city of Ljubljana, Slovenia. Philosopher, psychoanalyst, and one of the main theoreticians of today, having a great work through many areas of knowledge. Under the strong influence of Karl Marx, Hegel, and Lacan, he implemented an innovative criticism of modernity and Postmodernity. He's a professor at the University of Ljubljana. He presides the Society for Theoretical Psychoanalysis in Ljubljana, and he's the International Director of Humanities in the University of Big Back in London. Polemic, provocative, and good-humored, he has an admirable disposition, traveling all throughout the world, participating in conferences and debates and political interventions. Such, such as the one tonight. Therefore, he's one of the main references in reflecting about the limits and contradictions of capitalism in contemporaneity, promoting a courageous and innovative renewal of the idea of communism. But maybe the most ad adequate way of introducing him is through one of his jokes. In the Soviet Union, when young people asked Lenin what they should do, the leader used to counsel them, learn, learn, and learn. What leads us to this ancient Soviet joke? Marx, Engels, and Lenin are asked if they would rather have a lover or a wife. As it's expected, Marx, that was very traditional in his private life, answers a wife. Engels. A true bon vivant chooses a lover. To the surprise of everyone, Lenin says, I'd rather have a wife and a lover. Why? Is there any hidden perversion behind the image of the austere revolutionary? No, Lenin explains. Thus, I could tell my wife that I'm going to meet my lover, tell my lover that I'm going to meet my wife, and then... I could go to a calm place in order to learn, learn, and learn. Differently from many Marxists, Zizek doesn't believe that we know what's happening in the world and it would be enough for us to focus in making the people conscious and assume the power. We believe, he believes we don't know what's happening and we have a lot to study. I believe this has a lot to do with Zizek's work and the fact that we're all here tonight. I'd like to give the floor to Zizek. I'm sorry that I have now to change to the universal language of imperialism, no? <laughs> That's life. I must say I enjoyed very much this beginning of my talk and it, it gave me the idea of maybe what would have been the most interesting conference, a kind of postmodern joke, just eight, nine, ten introductions, and then maybe if there is time, I give a short concluding <laughs> remark, you know. <laughs> uh, first, I am glad not only to be in Brazil, but to be here in Sao Paulo, because as I like to emphasize, for me it's not 
the north of Brazil, they are lazy, they dance too much, all that samba, carnival. I like Sao Paulo, nervous, stressful, and so on. So I think even if Ivana is my very, very good friend, she comes from Belém, I think. She will need, when we take over, a little bit of re-education camp to make her more tough. <laughs> uh, and second thing, uh, I would nonetheless like to begin, he deserves it, with a short note on Hugo Chavez. All reactionaries immediately noted, as if this has some deep spiritual meaning, that Chavez died on the very day on which Joseph Stalin died. But I would put an accent to another thing, since we also had here a representative of Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. You know, this is also the day when Rosa Luxemburg was born. And this axis is maybe more important. So let me begin. I, uh, I must confess that more often than not, I'm not here to flatter Chavez, more often than not, I did not like what Chavez was doing, especially in the last years of his reign. I don't mean the ridiculous accusations about his totalitarian dictatorship. To people who claim this, I would advise a year or two in a real Stalinist <laughs> dictatorship. But yes, he did many crazy things in foreign politics. I will never excuse him for his friendship with Ahmadinejad and especially Lukashenko, the kind of Groucho Marx character who rules Belarus. In economic politics, I think that a series of badly improvised measures he practiced, enacted, which instead of really solving problems, rather consistent, consisted in throwing money at the problems to cover them up. Then there are maybe, I don't know, some cases of mistreating political prisoners for which he was criticized even by his friend Noam Chomsky. Up to last and also least, some ridiculous cultural measures like so I heard prohibiting uh, Simpsons on TV. But all this, let's be serious, pales into insignificance compared with his basic project, what he was engaged in. We all know that today, in our global capitalism, with its spectacular and deeply uneven development, there are more and more people who are systematically excluded from active participation in social and political life. The explosive growth of slums in the last decades, especially in the third world megalopolises, from favelas here in Rio, in Mexico City, through Africa, Lagos, Chad, India, China, Philippines, Indonesia. This is, I think, probably the crucial geopolitical event of our time. Since sometime very soon, maybe it already happened, the urban population of the earth will outnumber the rural, rural agricultural population, and since slum inhabitants will compose the majority of the urban population, we are in no way dealing with a marginal phenomenon here. 
These large groups are, of course, nobody denies their existence, but here problems begin. These large groups are, of course, the favored objects of humanitarian care and charity of liberal elites. Recall the emblematic images, like the well-known photo of Bill Gates embracing a crippled Indian child. I think rich people today love to see this poverty and have these speeches like, oh my God, we live in our false affluence, but there are children there who die for unnecessary reasons, and we should do something about this. Even our capitalism is becoming charity capitalism. As I often repeat in my books, apropos the example of Starbucks, you know, charity and is becoming a way of life. Like, you go to Starbucks and they don't want to make you feel guilty for being a consumerist, no? So they tell you, our cappuccino is a little bit more expensive, but 1% goes for Guatemala children, 1% for rainforest. So, you know, you can be a consumerist with a clear conscience. The more you spend at Starbucks, the more you do something for Mother Earth, whatever. Chavez saw clearly that this is not enough. She saw the contours of a new apartheid on the horizon. And I really mean it. I think what is now slowly emerging is an apartheid much stronger than any class society. Like, I read now some ominous analysis of how, do you know that in the United States and so on, the rich, this is a clear tendency, are slowly emerging literally as a new biological race. They take care of their children before they are born through these all uh, genetic manipulations to make them more healthy, more intelligent. Uh, so again, we saw what once were class struggles re-emerging in the guise of new and even stronger divisions. And this is what is obfuscated today. Which is why to detect this, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, please, to look at popular culture. Often things we find in popular culture are, I think, quite interesting, maybe even much more interesting than what we find in serious culture. Let me give you a simple example, if you like cinema, <coughs> of surprising, potentially at least, progressive content in the lowest popular culture. Did you see this disgusting official Hollywood liberal elite film, The Last Spielberg, uh, Lincoln? This is the official story, struggle for black liberation for the end of slavery becomes a matter of high political intrigues on the capital and so on. But I think, don't laugh, I mean it seriously, there was a leftist answer to this film. Did you see the other one? Abraham Lincoln, the vampire slayer, the vampire killer. It is, of course, it's a totally crazy fiction. You know what's the story? That, uh, uh, Jefferson Davis and the Confederacy made a deal with American vampires that vampires will help them on the battlefield if they, if they provide to vampires 
regular number of blacks for, black, for blood, for food. And then the ridiculous solution is that Lincoln learns this and quickly makes out of silver reserves of United States silver bullets, which, as you probably know, kill vampires. And so the Battle of Gettysburg was won. Now, you can laugh at this. It is ridiculous. But isn't it as if all that is repressed from the original serious narrative, the fact that the fight to finish slavery was not just some Washington intrigues, but real violent struggle, re-emerges in this ridiculous film. And then I went further and in my analysis and came to a strange result that there is a class struggle in horror films, I'm not kidding, it's between vampires and zombies. Did you notice how vampires are upper class? They are usually educated, refined, rich, they live among us, while zombies are terrifying, inert, attacking from outside, poor. And to confirm this, I discovered, you can get it from BitTorrents for free whenever you want, a wonderful early horror film from 1932, before Chase Code rules were imposed, because in 33-4 such a film would not be possible, called White Zombie, where Bela Lugosi, the actor who a year before became famous for his role of Dracula, vampire, plays a plantation owner in Haiti. When the film opens, he receives some guests and shows them his factory, where they are uh, transforming uh, sugar canes into sugar. And then you see all his workers are zombies. And he explains to guests, this is wonderful. Zombies just work all the time. They don't complain about uh, hours of work. They don't want trade unions or whatever and so on. So you see, this is a little bit of what Jacques Lacan meant by his maybe strange idea that the truth has the structure of a fiction sometimes. What you cannot say in real serious narrative re-emerges in a very ridiculous form, but nonetheless it returns where? In uh, horror films, maybe even in cartoons. That's why I like cartoons. Imagine a typical Tom and Jerry cartoon. Are you, and try to imagine what happens there in a film with real actors. They lie to each other, they betray each other, they cut each other, they, it's, it, can you even, it is as if the brutality of our competitive life, which as such cannot be directly represented in a film with real actors, ah, you can do it in cartoons. So, okay, back to my point about Chavez and class divisions. Chavez did something great here. He was, I claim, the first who not only protected the poor, took care of the poor in the old populist Peronist style. He did not just speak for them, for the poor. He seriously, whatever his mistakes were, put all his energy into awakening the poor effectively mobilizing them as active and autonomous political agents. 
He saw clearly that without the inclusion of all those excluded in favelas and so on, our societies will gradually approach a state of permanent civil war. And since I like films, uh, I recalled, apropos Chavez, the immortal, maybe best, line of a dialogue from Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. You remember a scene one-third into the film when Kane starts to publish his, whatever is the title, populist newspaper defending the underprivileged and a rich banker comes to him and says, are you crazy? You are a man of, uh, you are a man of wealth and property and uh, full of money. Why do you speak against your class for all those poor? And you know what Citizen Kane answers, I quote it. If I don't defend the interests of the underprivileged, underprivileged, then someone else will. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Maybe even they themselves will start to defend their privileges, their underprivileged. Uh, and we certainly don't want that, you know. This is what Chavez clearly saw. Uh, so while we hear all the prattle about Chavez's ambiguous legacy, about how he divided his nation, when, when we expose him to maybe sometimes even <coughs> deserved criticism, let's not forget what it all was about. It was simply, as they say, but they don't practice it in American constitution, about the the people about the government of the people for the people by the people. Yes, he created a lot of mess, but with all his theatrical rhetorics, he was sincere, he really meant it. And when he failed, it, these are our failures. We don't have answers. So conclude me, allow me to conclude in a, this part in a slightly pathetic way, but I mean it very seriously, although it will sound sentimental. It really came to me that, you know, one of my friends told me that their father recently died, and he, their father, had a very strange disease. It exists, although it's rare, that your heart grows too large. And since it grows too large, the veins are too wide, so simply, the heart breaks down, not sentimentally, but it cannot do all the work, you know. It's simply too much blood because of how wide it is and because it's too big a heart, it cannot do it. Well, my dream is maybe Chavez did not die of cancer, but really of having too big a heart in this sense. So, my God, you know, again, I'm not saying let's celebrate him, let's brutally criticized him if necessary, but as one of us. So, what would be the legacy of Chavez? Can he serve as a model also outside Latin America? Here, the situation is getting critical, especially now in Europe. And I think this is, for me, a kind of a symbol of what left can and cannot do, especially in so-called developed countries. Uh, 
The situation in parts of Europe now is that we have great unrest, demonstrations, even permanent demonstrations, almost civil war, great dissatisfaction, and so on, like in Greece, Spain, and so on. But strangely, this objectively almost revolutionary situation cannot be transformed into an organized movement with at least minimally clear vision about what to do. Something is happening for which we already have models in the past. Like recently I read, maybe I'm wrong, but that's how it was presented to me. Recently I read a book about Mexican Revolution and I simplify it a little bit, but that's what basically happened on a crucial date in November 1914. If you know Mexican history, you know what happened. From the north, troops of Pancho Villa. From the south, Emiliano Zapata closed on and liberated, occupied, okay, entered Mexico City and basically took power. But now comes, for me, one of the saddest lessons. What happened then? They met, they talked for two months, and then they left. One to the north, the other to the south. So uh, why is it then? About this I would like to talk more today. It's what in Hegel's old terms in traditional Marxism was called the passage from in itself, an sich, to for itself from chaotic protest to an organized program and political force to realize it. Why doesn't this happen? Now, probably, if you are friends of Tony Negri and other, let's call them Delezian revolutionaries, you will say, but that's what is great about today's protest movements, that precisely they are, you know the jargon, self-organized multitude, molecular, no longer hierarchic structures with an authoritarian leader, and so on, and so on. I doubt this easy answer. First, the model of this, of this, uh, celebration of multitudes is the idea, of course, of local, so-called local democracy and active participation of citizens. The idea is we don't need high centralized organization, we don't need people who know and about what people, what ordinary people do or need and tell them, we don't need leaders, we don't need centralized power, we need active citizens meeting, debating, learning through mistakes, what they really want, what to do. Okay, of course, there are situations when, and these are magical moments, when this happens. But let me tell you something, and I'm here telling you this to provoke you. It will be problematic probably for you. If I look deeply into my heart, and I think that the great majority of people, I don't despise them for this because I'm with them here, would agree with this. 
I'm sorry to tell you, but I wouldn't like to live in a society in this permanent state of mobilization, you know, where all the time I had to go to meetings, active participation, and so on and so on. I want somebody, state or collective organism, whatever we call it, to do invisibly its work to create a kind of a network which allows me just to do the creative or less creative things that I want to do. That's my first problem. My second problem about leaders. No, people don't want, do, sorry, people don't know what they want. It's not that we intellectuals know, we probably know even less today. But I claim that there is in every authentic revolutionary process something very similar to what in psychoanalysis we call transference at work. You don't know what you want, but to learn what you want, you need somebody, and I'm not ashamed to call him the leader, who appears falsely, but nonetheless is the one who somehow knows what you want. And isn't it, think about it, isn't this what a really great leader does? You listen to a really great leader and the magic effect of his thoughts is, oh my God, now I understand what I really want. And I'm sorry to tell you, I don't see anything proto-fascist or whatever in this. So again, uh, uh, I don't think that this eternal hidden dream of the left, uh, uh, abolish all higher hierarchic structures, we need active citizenship, uh, and so on, participation. Of course, that this is the answer. We should never forget that, precisely to create a space for this active local participation, we need large, efficient structures. Humanity needs them more than ever today. Just think about what we will have to do to properly approach ecological crisis. And let me be very clear. My message here is not resignation. Oh, we didn't succeed, so let's be realists. Let's just accept the bourgeois state. No, my demands are here much higher. I claim that, to be again very honest and brutal, of course, when we have this collective, sorry to use this dirty word, multiple political orgasm situation like Tahrir Square, you know, one million people there insisting, persisting together, you almost cry, like it's beautiful. But I'm sorry to tell you, I'm obsessed by what in English they call the morning after, meaning the morning after the night of drinking, you know. For me, the true measure of a revolution or just revolt of transformative process are not these ecstatic collective moments. They come cheap. What is the most horrible for me is that then the result is the same as with French 68. You know, people gather in a cafeteria 10 years later have a coffee and talk, oh my God, wasn't it so beautiful when we were young and 
on the streets there, and then somebody's cell phone rings. Sorry, I have to run to my bank for my job, whatever. The measure of the revolution is what really changes precisely afterwards when things return to normal. I claim that bourgeois liberals like nothing more than this temporary revolutionary outbursts. Everybody knows that in France it's a matter of honor today for every right-wing politician to say, you know, I was also on the barricades in 68. It's almost kind of a, you know, if you were not, you cannot really be a good right-winger today. It's like a kind of a child disease in the making, necessary disease in the making of a proper right-winger. So again, the really, and even in my very good friend's work, Alain Badiou's work, I find a little bit of this uh, dismissal for dismissing of ordinary everyday life as just animal life, non-evental. No, the really difficult thing is to change the daily life when things return to normal. I'm not here criticizing Chavez. Maybe he failed, but I claim, and that's the first thing to learn from him, from what I know, and I have friends, almost a small private spy service in Venezuela, people who inform me. He saw this, he was well aware of this. He tried desperately to do something at this level, organizing different forms of ownership, whatever, cooperation, participation. Second thing, that the work of Chavez allows us to approach again is, I claim, the problem of violence. Uh, first, we should demystify violence, not in, the, in this cheap pseudo-leftist sense, oh, it depends which violence and so on. No, what I want to say is that when we criticize the 20th century left for its excessive violence, as it is usually done by critics of Stalinism, the usual mistake is to focus on violence, like, oh, Stalin was wrong killing millions. Of course he was wrong, but it's extremely stupid, I claim, to say Stalin was otherwise okay, just he made a mistake here. No, something must have been wrong in his basic project that in order to impose it, he had to have recourse to violence. In this sense, for me, brutal physical violence and terror is ultimately always a sign of impotence. Let's take one of the high points of Stalinist violence, the forced collectivization of farms at the end of the 1920s, beginning of 30s. Isn't this extremely brutal violence, which then led to, as you probably know, big famine in Ukraine and so on, isn't this a sign of an extreme impotence, inability to actually solve the problem, which already Lenin knew is the big problem in Russia of how to really bring farmers into socialism? Even, even in uh, Chinese uh, great cultural revolution, all those things that I remember from when I was young, about, you know, 
thousands of red guardists destroying old, destroying old uh, monasteries, historical buildings. Wasn't this basically a brutal acting out, or rather, sorry, let me be precise clinically, passagial act, which betrayed a deep inability of really breaking with the past. So again, the real problem is usually not violence, but the flaw in the very concept project that we try to realize which pushed us towards violence. To give you here another example, and I think it's decent to not to talk only about Chavez, but my God, there are women in this world, and today is their day. No, let's at least remember this. Uh, violence against women. How hypocritical are we often here? For example, you remember, probably it was reported also in your media, the, those terrible gang rapes in India. Eh, but there, the way it is reported in our media is deeply symptomatic. My friend, the Indian novelist, who is very much to the left, supporting Naxalit uh, Maoist rebels, and this is another thing you don't learn in our media. You know what's happening now in India? There are almost one million armed Maoist rebels fighting for local tribal people who are the big victims of the ongoing uh, 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 modernization of India. What I want to say is that how all our media were full of these stories, but as Arundhati Roy immediately noticed, why? Because it's so simple, because those rapists were poor, ordinary people. You have all the time in India much worse horror stories. For example, everybody who knows, okay, I don't know them, but I read about them. Uh, prostitution houses in Bombay knows that there is a big systematic business of rich people sending their emissaries to poor villages in Nepal, where they buy girls from four or five years old and bring them either for bordelos or often simply at home and slaves starting to exploit them sexually immediately. Everybody knows this. It's done systematically. I would like to read also about that. Or another two examples of precisely violence as a sign of impotence and that's crucial. Of course there are individual private cases of violence, but we should be very specific here. Individual cases are often simply pathological. What can you do, maybe? But okay, let's concede this point. What worries me recently is a rise of, and maybe you know some cases of Violence, especially against women, which is not simply, you know, here is a madman, there madman, but which has clear, collective, almost ritualized status. It's a collective ritual reassertion of masculinity in moments of panic. Of course, probably you know it. The big example here is Ciudad Juarez on the border with United States, south of El Paso. You know so-called femicide there. 
It's very interesting what happens there. Ciudad Juarez is a new industrial city with this non-creative, just putting things together. I don't know how you call it. It's a name for this industry. And there are thousands of young, independent women there, of course, uh, earning their jobs with poorly paid, stupid work, but nonetheless, at least living independent life out of family control and so on. And this obviously is a kind of a provocation to traditional machismo. So what emerged there, every year I think over 100 are killed, is a typical scenario. Local gangs kidnap one of these lone working girls and then, I mean, I may be a cynic, but it's sad even for me to think about it. The poor girl is not only gang-raped, but then gradually killed in a, well, very brutal and ritualized form. For example, first, so that it hurts with scissors. They cut off her nipples and so on and so on. But what I want to emphasize, and here comes the horror, is that this is not just, you know, crazy people here, crazy people there. It's a ritual. It's a formula. It's a collective, obscene, almost pseudo-sacred event done systematically. And the saddest thing, as you can expect, is that uh, what police does, if you report this, because these gangs are often connected with the police, is that they call social workers who systematically try to reinterpret these cases as cases of local family violence. That girl was killed, or probably her father was a drunk, and so on, you know. Systematically obliterating this collectively ritual case. Now you will tell me, okay, I'm a white Western racist. I'm again picking of Mexicans. Ah, uh -uh. let's go to the other side of the United States, Canada, which boasts itself to be like part of Europe in the United States, more enlightened, tolerant than United States, exactly the same phenomenon, much less reported, because it's easier to attack primitive Mexicans there. I have a friend in Vancouver, west of Canada, which boasts to be the most liberal, progressive American city. Close to Vancouver is a big reservation of natives, whatever we call them. I don't like the term natives, because like, we are cultural, they are poor natives, part of nature or what, but whatever. And these natives in a reservation, after a long time, were allowed to have their own police force. So then a ritual, again, be attentive, a ritual, not just individual cases, emerged almost 80, around usually, uh, women arrived, is that a group of white people, a gang, for Saturday evening or Friday, drunken, go to reservation, kidnap a lone native girl, and the same story, brutally gang rape her, kill her, and, now comes the trick, dump her body just within the reservation. And then, if local native police calls Canadian police, they claim, oh, it's in your reservation, this is not our job. Again, the same story. It's probably some, uh, some local uh, family violence, probably father raped the daughter and so on. Again, systematically, they try to obliterate, to render invisible the, uh, how should I call it, 
almost, I would say, institutional ritualistic function of this violence. This is not there are madmen and rapists. No, this is an obscene social ritual. And I think that the biggest element in this series are, I don't know how it is with you, but in Europe, pedophilia in Catholic Church. It's absolutely not true as church representatives claim in Europe that, okay, what do we want? We are not perfect. There are pedophiles everywhere. No wonder they are also in the church. No, my good friend Gary Wills from Chicago, a Catholic but a very progressive one, even found some cases where, it's so ironic, where a guy who became a priest before he became a priest was like straight heterosexual. It's literally his being a priest which redirected him into pedophilia. So you see, it's again, it's not just, oh, there is everywhere pedophilia, we have it also. No, it's in, in an obscene way, absolutely part of some, in a way, hidden church identity, which also explains how self-defensive church here is, you know, not informing uh, the police as far as possible and so on and so on. So much about violence. Okay, let's go on to the next point which I associate with Chavez, Eurocentrism. Should we be Eurocentrists or not? What I liked about Chavez is that of course he was for indigenous rights and so on and so on. But that he nonetheless, as far as I know, resisted the temptation of claiming, of uh, condemning modernization as such and claiming the solution is to return in a modern form, of course, but nonetheless to some, I don't know, Inca, Mayan tradition and so on, some more authentic collective being and so on and so on. I am deeply skeptical about it. I think that uh, not only is with global capitalism, global modernization here, there is no way out, or no way back, even worse, in what sense worse? Let me return briefly to India. What happened to me there when I was visiting India about a year and a half ago, I think. In a debate there, some Indian cultural theorists attacked me for Eurocentrism, of course, I'm used to it. But what they told me is interesting. They told me, don't you see that the very fact that we, defending our Indian culture against colonization, have to speak the language of the colonizers, English. Don't you see in what disadvantage we find ourselves here? Like, we cannot even speak our own language. We have to formulate our very dreams of liberation of new India in the very language which caused our humiliation and colonization. Sorry to tell you I exploded. I first exploded, apropos one detail which I hope you were intelligent enough to immediately notice it. And because of this detail, I immediately accused them of racism, namely, 
I'm sorry to tell you, but as you know, English is not my language. You know, they, their reason was, oh, I'm coming from small, shitty European nation. For them, it's natural to speak English. But we, big India, no, no, that's different. But more fundamentally, what I developed, and you know who agreed with me? I met them. The untouchables, the true lower classes. Namely, that, how uh, to put it, it is true that there was some pre-modern India, and then British colonizers brutally imposed a foreign culture, a new universal language, and so on. But, and this is what Marx was saying all the time, but what India today wants, a new, open, modern, democratic, post-colonial India, it is what they want as the goal of their fight against the residues of colonization is a dream which emerged with the very colonization. And now we come nonetheless to Hegel. Hegel saw this very clearly. This paradox of how, let's say, you are colonized. A universality is brutally imposed on you. And you experience this as a traumatic loss. My God, we are deprived of our true being. We have to speak foreign language. But what you are really deprived of, this is crucial, is not what you really lost, pre-modern India. No, it's something, the space of which was open to this very brutal modernization. You should never forget this. Uh, uh, let me... Uh, give you another proof. There is a text which is the best condensation, resume of traditional India. It's called The Loss of Manu, a detailed description of caste system, all it, blah, blah, blah. Ah, you know what's the irony, as I learned from my friends there? This book, The Loss of Manu, was half forgotten in traditional India and so on. It was definitely put together as an ancient pre-modern Indian classic by British colonizers in the early 19th century when they said to themselves, we need some local ideology to keep Indians under our rule. Contrary to what people think, imperialists were always multicultural. They definitely didn't want the majority of the colonized to become like them. No, no. They, even in a hypocritical way, they loved their authenticity. Like, my basic experience here is when I read 40 years ago, a friend brought me from South Africa a defense of the apartheid regime of apartheid. It wasn't, no, blacks are less stupid. No, the defense was, oh my God. What a beautiful, naive, but authentic world those Bushmans and Hottentot have. If we simply abolish apartheid, they will all be lost in our vulgar, western, technocratic society. We need them in their difference to remind us of our own alienation, of how a much more authentic relationship to nature is possible, blah, 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 all that. That's why, in spite of all his compromises, I admire Mandela, 
that he never fell into this trap of returning to some original roots. You know that uh, even one, another of my heroes, the black fighter in America, if you saw the movie with Denzel Washington, uh, 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 Malcolm X knew this. You know, X means he has chosen Malcolm X to stand for the loss of roots. We don't have father's name. We, we miss these traditional roots. But his point was not, oh, now we must return to some African roots. No, the genius of Malcolm X was that he saw this X, we lack roots in tradition, as a chance of a new universal uh, 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 liberation. Okay, maybe we cannot agree with him, I don't. He found this in Islam, no? as a universal religion where it doesn't matter if you are, uh, if you are uh, black or not. And uh, the last point, let me go nonetheless a little bit into philosophy here. Uh, what Hegel saw clearly here, and I admire him for this, is again how I quote here from Hegel's logic in Logic of Reflection, he introduces a wonderful term. He calls it absoluter Gegenstoss, absolute uh, count, absolute recoil or counterpunch, if you want. The idea being that a thing doesn't precede its loss, but a thing emerges only through its loss. And, okay, to return back to this English language and in India, I claim that uh, the illusion of putting the blame on English language, like English language prevents us from uh, really spontaneously expressing in our own way our dreams, is that uh, here I'm a Lacanian and also Hegelian. I claim, and this is the big lesson of psychoanalysis, but every language is like this. Every language, if there is a lesson of Lacan, is that there is a fundamental gap between human subject and language. As uh, we should put it, it's not enough to say like Heidegger, language is the house of being. A Lacanian should add, language is a torture house of being. Which means what? That, and here I quote in this big fat book, uh, the Austrian writer, who got a Nobel Prize, Elfriede Jelinek. I don't like her very much. She's too dirty for me. I'm a conservative. But uh, she had a wonderful idea. In one interview, she said, language by its nature is lying. We have to torture language to make it say the truth. Now, when I said this at one talk, somebody attacked me with this humanist stupidity, saying something like, but when you start to torture language, you end up torturing people. No, my point is it's exactly the opposite. You have a choice here. You either torture language or you torture people. Now you will say, I'm crazy. What do I mean by this? I tell you, look at all poetry. Isn't poetry the greatest torture machine you can imagine? Just imagine to write a sonnet, what you have to do, cut words short, squeeze them, and so on. Poetry is a torture machine of language. Even in cinema, I developed this in my book. Take Eisenstein, what he does with images. 
The whole language of his montage of attraction is a language of cutting, torturing, synthetically, artificially bringing it together. Now you will say, yeah, but that's Eisenstein. What about the other line, Rossellini, Tarkovsky, which is more passive organic, not active participation, but passively just let it be. No, it's, I claim it's another form of torture, Tarkovsky. Did you see his last film, uh, Sacrifice? The first shot, camera for seven minutes slowly approaching a tree. We have a name, I think it's, I forgot what, it's bloody, no, it's uh, uh, the name, how do you call it, the torturing machine, which you are on it and then it stretches you. You know what I mean, no? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that then the debate between Tarkovsky and Eisenstein would be which way it's better to torture images, no? Einstein would say, cut him. No, no, Tarkovsky would say, stretch them. It's more painful. It works better. <laughs> what I mean, quite seriously, is that, again, there is a fundamental violence in language here. So, uh, to conclude slowly, I would like to apply uh, this uh, Hegelian idea of what he calls absolute recoil. How? Something emerges through its very loss, or to put it in another way, as Hegel put it, when we think we are returning to some roots, we are effectively creating in the very return what we are returning to. And I can tell you that my country, Slovenia, is a great example of it. We returned to our roots through national constitution in late 19th century. Of course, it was all invented at that point. And it's quite incredible, Eric Hobsbawm, the great British Marxist who just now, a year ago or when, even less died, he, I hope it's translated here. If not, then Ivana, you have an order to publish it. A wonderful collective book called uh, Invented Traditions, no? where he wonderfully shows how even such well-known, like Scotland, you know the idea of kilts, these male skirts, no? Nothing like that in Middle Ages. This was the way we know them done, all invented in late 19th century uh, revival and so on. Why am I saying this? Now the concluding part back to today's politics. Because uh, this holds especially for beliefs. I think that we, but not only we, it was all the time, people never, I claim, authentically believed. We always believed through this recoil. You believe into something by maintaining a distance towards it, even by making cynically fun of it. Which is why, for me, that's the last central point, uh, cynicism is not that you brutally are able to accept reality the way it is. Cynicism is the greatest illusion. Those who are cynical realists are most blind for what is going on. Uh, what do I mean by this? Some of my friends, even Frederick Jameson, have this idea, which I think is profoundly wrong, that today 
We live in an openly cynical era where those in power no longer take seriously their own ideology. Like when Americans say we bring democracy, it's clear even to them that they are making fun. It's really only power interests, whatever, economic colonization. So today, it's the idea that today we, don't, we do not need any longer some exquisite uh, some exquisite uh, uh, critique of ideology with this symptomal complex reading, what is unsaid in what is said, uh, uh, absences, lacuna in... No, it's simply direct bluff not taken seriously, so we don't need critique of ideology. The big lesson of Marx here, which, to which we should return, is no that precisely such brutally realist thinking, like no bullshit, forget about ideas, we all know, it's only about man, money, power, sex, whatever you want, it's the greatest illusion. Uh, let me uh, give you an example which I think at least should convince you. Remember the financial crisis of 2008. I'm sorry to tell you, but it was not done by, uh, if we are looking for those guilty, it was not some welfare state idealists living in their illusions. It was done precisely by most cynical banking managers, speculation, who thought, fuck all ideals, it's just about money, and so on and so on. That's the point. That, and Freud also knew this when he says clearly, insofar as cynicism clinically means a perverse position that far from being the most open attitude, like hysterics only half dream about it, but perverts go to the end. They do everything openly. No, Freud says that uh, the unconscious is most inaccessible, most difficult to penetrate in perverts. Perverts are not people with the least of repression. They are people with most of oppression. So, uh, what is it then that cynics do not see? Precisely among other things, uh, the power, the material power of illusions themselves. And this is for me, again, the deepest insight of Marx, of his commodity fetishism theory. That uh, illusions are not just ideological illusions. This is not Marxist notion of ideology. We have some real life and then some crazy illusions. No, what Marx called commodity fetishism are illusions which are in the very heart of our real life. The place of commodity fetishism is real commodity, the most brutal real commodity exchange. And here, what this means is that precisely insofar as we live in an era which claims to be brutally cynical, post-ideological, we need, we need critique of ideology more than ever. So to conclude another just Five minutes, five minutes in a dialectical sense. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, let me give you a nice example. Is it translated here with you? If not, you should translate it. A book by an interesting Italian uh, social philosopher 
Maurizio Lazzarato, The Making of the Indebted Man. Is it? No, it's a wonderful book. Simple but wonderful. This book claims how in today's global capitalism the status of being indebted changed. And changed how? So that what we are witnessing today, and this is ideology at its purest, is that the fact that if we poorer people want to be consumerists, all have to be, you describe me how they do it in Brazil here, all have to be indebted, this is in spontaneous ideology conceptualized as the term is entrepreneurship of the self. Like the idea is big or small, we are all capitalists. In what sense? Like I'm a poor guy and I have to decide, will I go on drinking or will I, with great pain, put some money aside and invest it into my education? They claim, ah, you are entrepreneur of yourself, this is your decision to invest into yourself in this way and so on and so on. So that the idea is that the debt functions like capitalist investment. Let us say, I want my children to be educated, so it's really I, as if a small capitalist enterprise, I get indebted in order to invest in them. So you see the ideological beauty of this operation. All of a sudden, it doesn't really matter, okay, some, somebody has a big factory or whatever, I have nothing but this is just a matter of where the decimal comma is. Basically, we are all capitalists investing. The other thing that Lazzarato shows very nicely is how this logic of being indebted and investment serves as a wonderful way of ideological control. No longer do we need old ideological oppressive machines and so on. The moment you are in debt, you have to control yourself to take care that you repay your debts and so on and so on. Then Lazzarato shows in a wonderful way how this works not only at the level of individuals, but even companies or states and so on and so on. For example, I remember some seven, eight years, correct me if I'm wrong, ago, when Argentina, through some, when Nestor Kirchner was still president, through some, I think, financial help or loans precisely from Chavez, decided to pay back directly its debt to IMF. And I remember the reaction of IMF Instead of being glad, oh my God, we got our money back, it was absolute worry, like, but how will we control them now? They will be just doing whatever they want. In other words, I think, and here, we can perfectly apply the Freudian notion of superego. When you are bombarded by an impossible demand, but the whole point of the authority which terrorizes you is that precisely you are not supposed to, to meet this demand to do it. And I think this is how debt functions. The point is not for you to repay the debt. The point is precisely as a means of control to keep you, uh, to keep you 
to keep you permanently in debt. So, this is, I claim, where we are today. And I think without this universalization of capitalism, where we are all of a sudden all capitalists, even if you are a poor guy, again, who gets indebted to educate your children, ah, you are a small capitalist investing, and so on and so on. This is a very simple but elementary example of how ideology works. This is also a wonderful way to, to dismantle whatever remains of the welfare state. You know, instead of state providing for your school, they claim, no, no, you are an autonomous small capitalist. You should decide. You should take care. You want security? You should invest in it. It's a wonderful example of how your de facto slavery is sold to you as your greater freedom. Instead of saying, I must be in a panic, how will, will I have enough money to pay the debt for my son, children's, sorry for the male chauvinist twist, I automatically assume that children who go to school are sons. No, I apologize for this. Uh, but how, you know, you are treated as a free small capitalist investor to mask this debt. So again, uh, what I'm saying here is that this is a nice proof of how precisely this allegedly brutal modern financial world is the world of illusions, the world of dreaming, and as there never was one. But, conclude, allow me to conclude, maybe some of you already heard it, with an extremely brutal and tasteless joke. As a matter of fact, not so tasteless, I in a way like it. <laughs> never forget the basic lesson of Marx. In order to go Further, to criticize capitalism, one has to go through capitalism. You know, even concerning so-called formal freedoms, Marx was not a Stalinist who claimed freedom is just a formal freedom. No, Marx knew very well that only a formal freedom, which is empty, allows you to build a measure from which you can then see how effectively not free you are. This is why we should be very attentive and reject the Stalinist reasoning, oh, bourgeois freedom are only false freedoms, and then they take away from you those freedoms. Yeah, but the problem is, if you are taken away your formal freedom, you lose even a chance to see where may be your actual freedom. So again, all temptation to move back this vision of some pre-modern paradise and then comes the wound of capitalist modernization should be rejected. Why? The promised dirty story. It's in my nature. I cannot resist it. When I was in Palestina, West Bank, in Ramallah, last summer, I met a Christian Palestinian, you know, we tend to forget this. Our media do not report enough that 20% of Palestinians are Christians. It's not just some Islam plot or whatever. And this guy, they are wonderfully liberated, emancipated, many Palestinians, told me a wonderful obscene joke 
about Jesus Christ, which is the best metaphor of what I tried to tell you with this reference to Hegel. The joke is that just when Christ was not dying, but you know, the last night when Christ was praying there in Gethsemane Garden, I don't know where, and he knew, of course, being God, that next day he will be arrested, crucified. His apostles around his tent there worried. One of them said, my God, our Lord sacrificed all his life for our welfare. He didn't have any fun in his life. Shouldn't he experience some fun at least before he will die? No. So let's help him. So they call Mary Magdalene, no, knowing who she is, and said, why wouldn't you go in and seduce Jesus? Let him have some fun. Of course, she being Mary Magdalene, <laughs> with pleasure, she does it, no? Then apostles listen. Five minutes afterwards, Mary Magdalene comes out running totally pale and terrified. And they ask her, what happened? No, it's not what you think. It's not that Jesus was a secret pervert or whatever. It simply, she said, it started well. I started to dance in front of him, and our Lord looked at me kindly. Then I slowly went further. I raised my skirt. I spread my legs, and to excite him, I put my sex organ close to his face, and then it happened. Jesus looked at my spread vagina and said, Oh, what a horrible wound, and put his palm of it and made it full, you know. This is the liberation I don't want. I want us to enjoy our wounds. Thank you very much. Now you will do, I think, he's my good friend, Kim, because he knows how to organize debates in a Stalinist way, which means you are all free to ask questions, but then, unfortunately, there is not enough time, so you must put written questions, and he does his censorship. No, he's my friend. Bom, queria convidar, então, quem tiver questões por escrito para enviar aqui Probably. As a good Stalinist, he wrote himself. Uh, ah, you mean for translation? Okay, okay, so that you don't have to say it yes. twice, no? Okay. Definitely. <coughs> Bom, tem uma primeira aqui que eu já vou fazer, enquanto também vem as outras, uh, que parte do livro que o Slavoj veio lançar menos que nada. Uh, no menos que nada, Zizek traz a, a, a imagem não de um Marx leitor de Hegel, mas de um Hegel leitor de Marx. Yeah, but, uh, you know, like, my God, read the book, which I find this joke wonderful. It's called Less Than Nothing. Well, it certainly doesn't wait less than nothing, no. Uh, it is a close reading of Hegel, even some new stuff like quantum physics. I try to throw a new light on all these epistemological problems of quantum physics through Hegel. But the basic impetus is a political one. 
I claim that, let's face it, precisely if we want to be Marxists today, we have to admit that, although Marx was of course not guilty for Stalinism, but the very fact that something like Stalinism emerged, or the very fact that today the main role of existing old-style communists is to be, as in China, obviously the best managers of today's capitalism. This does show that maybe we have to rethink critically the Marxist legacy. Not to go behind, but to repeat Marx, to do it again. Like, I agree that what Marx did in his critique of political economy is breathtaking. It's, I would say, not only the best, but simply the only serious description of the totality of capitalist reproduction. But there are so many questions to be asked. For example, who is the agent of potential revolutionary change today? Is it still the old working class? I doubt. Today, for example, in Western Europe, to be in the pro classical proletarian position, to have a permanent wage job where you are exploited, but at least you are permanently exploited, <laughs> it's almost a privileged position. More and more, the model becomes half-time unemployed, precarious jobs, and so on, all that. And there are, as I already said, favelas, people who are excluded, and so on. So the other problem that I raise in a very naive way, and again we are back to Chavez, uh, the role of natural resources in exploitation. Marx was here maybe really too much marked by his time when he clearly unambiguously claimed that natural resources are not a source of value. And the irony is that you know what he uses as an example? Oil. So are we aware if we apply this in a direct mechanic way, what this means? This means that insofar as now because of fracking, I think Americans no longer need, I don't know, Venezuelan oil. But when Chavez was selling oil to United States, basically if we apply, and I don't agree with this, what I'm saying, if we mechanically apply Marxist position here, it would commend that Chavez was exploiting the United States because he was selling for hard money something which has no value in the Marxist sense of value. I don't agree with this. I'm just saying that all this and the problem raised by Tony Negri. Sorry? Sorry, please uh, make it. Who? Me? Who? Who is working for the USA? Can you? I'm interested in this. I didn't get it. Who is working for the USA? I don't know, maybe. Me or? Who? Okay, but say it in your language and he will translate it. You see, when I say this, it's typical. Once I was even physically attacked in London. 
What monetarism? I'm well aware of. If you want to tell me, I totally agree with you, I've written about it, that the whole monetary system based on dollar allows United States an incredible exploitation of the entire world. I refer in my book, I think that Boitiempo was kind enough to publish The Year of Dreaming Dangerously to... What? No. I'm... What? Sorry, okay, I mean, somebody should trans... What I'm saying is that I'm well aware of all the monetary mechanisms, how United States de facto functions today as what a good Greek economist called Varoufakis, I think, calls Minotaur. Like, do you know that for the last 40 years, from Nixon era, United States need to function one billion dollars per day from other countries. And it's precisely true. This money then being invested on Wall Street through all that stuff, that they succeed in doing this without repaying the debts and so on and so on. So I have no, I have no illusions here. What I'm only saying is that, and I follow here my good friend uh, Frederick Jameson in his short book on capital, did Boitiempo also publish it or will? Not yet, okay. Where Frederick Jensen says the same thing, where he emphasizes how it is absolutely crucial today to rethink, change, and expand the notion of exploitation. For example, Jensen even proposes a crazy move of including permanently unemployed into exploited, in the sense that, he claims, unemployment is no longer today the old unemployment about which Marx was talking, this reserve army manipulated and so on and so on. More and more, the whole strata, the whole groups are getting permanently unemployed. Unemployment has today an incredibly stronger structural role. Whole countries are in a symbolic sense unemployed in the sense that they are proclaimed rogue countries and simply excluded. Of course, this exclusion is always inclusion. For example, Congo is presented as a crazy rogue state. Yes, but I don't think there is in the entire world a country more included in global capitalism than Congo. With, you know that. The, the minerals used in all our digital machines come from there and so on and so on. So I'm aware of all of this. All I'm saying is that if you simply dogmatically insist on some working class fundamentalism, only hard workers really create value, then it's how would then the moment you get uh, like then it's a problem how to account for so-called third world state wanting to profit from their natural wealth. I think, again, my theory here is 
again by some economists whom I appreciate very much, I developed this again in the year of Dreaming Dangerously book that uh, today, I like very much this theory, it's a simple one, we are in a way partially returning from uh, profit to rent. For Marx, at the beginning was rent, rent for the land, and then with the development of capitalism, more and more rent goes to profit. I claim that today, more and more, rent is the source of wealth. And the example I use is this mega rich people, the new digitally rich people. A stupid, simple example. Take Bill Gates. How did he become, okay, a Mexican guy beat him, not the most <laughs> wealthy, the second. <coughs> you must be very, you must use very artificial tricks to explain how he extra exploits this, that. No, I think it's a much more efficient interpretation, this one. Bill Gates privatized part of what Marx called general intellect, the collective intellectual substance which should be out there for all of us to communicate with each other. We are paying Bill Gates a rent so that through internet and so on we can communicate with each other. It's the privatization of what Marx called collective substance of knowledge, it's rent in its form. That's all I'm saying. Let's remain Marxist, of course, but let's, my God, do what Marx himself would have definitely insisted and what he, up to a point, already saw. Back to the question, nonetheless, I got a little bit lost now. I think that for reasons into which I don't have time to go now, I already talked too much, uh, uh, that uh, maybe we should risk philosophically returning to Hegel a little bit. In the sense, in the precise sense in which I claim at some precise level maybe Hegel was more materialist than Marx. Hegel was not a crazy idealist who thought, oh, out of my brain I can develop uh, everything that exists. No. Hegel precisely was much more open to the contingency of historical development. That's why Hegel prohibited too much dreaming about the future. You know, when he says it's not for us to, to look forward. I claim that this Marxist traditional, let's call it by its name, eschatology, or what I like to call Helderlin paradigm. <coughs> Helderlin, the German poet, you know, whose most famous line is endlessly quoted by Heidegger, wo das Gefahr ist, wächst das Rettende auch. Where the danger is the greatest, there also salvation potentially arises. This vision of history of, we are now at a dangerous moment, lowest moment, but up, there is a chance of a big reversal. I, and Marx has this, for example, in Grundrisse, how? Proletarian position is the greatest alienation, but the chance for liberation. I think that our situation is much more adequately described by, in Hegelian terms. We had a great attempt of, attempt of liberalization in the 20th century, communism and so on. It failed, but 
how to avoid the conclusion, oh, so we should do nothing, become cynics, and so on. Hegel has a much more tragic position. Hegel's position is it has to fail the first time. The problem is precisely not to lose hope after the first failure. If you like popular cinema, then my comparison would be the, I don't like him especially, but here he wrote a good book, the American philosopher and cinema theorist Stanley Cavell, who wrote a wonderful book on comedies of remarriage. You know, there are many of them with Catherine Hepburn or Hitchcock. Uh, comedies, whose story is this one? You have a couple who are first passionately in love, they marry. Then, of course, when the first bliss is over, they divorce. They meet again, and, you know, only the second time when they really get to know each other is the true authentic marriage, like that. You have to marry twice to the same person, of course, to have the real marriage. Maybe something similar, sorry for the obscenity of the comparison, goes for authentic revolutionary process. First, it has to go wrong, and then it's the true test, you know, if you go on, then. But I am afraid now to go too much into it. It's in this big, fat book. You were talking how anguished you get for not being able to answer too many questions, and here we have about 30 questions that are evidently difficult to be totally comprehended. I separated some issues that are repeated. And so later on, we have several questions here speaking about your observation that the protests in Europe have the spirit of rebellion but not of revolution. Many people asked their about their impressions on Latin American and the Brazilian government, we can gather this with a question about how can we think about the political participation today? How can we distinguish a leader that conducts to freedom from a fascist leader? Well, uh, first about Latin America. You know, I'm not here, sorry to be Tasteless. I'm not here to kiss your asses, you know. I'm not one, another, tried not to be, another disgusting European intellectual who uh, enjoys his privileged life there and like revolutions if they happen far away on another continent so that his life is not <laughs> perturbed too much. I, my true friendship towards Latin America is precisely that I want to retain a critical spirit. I frankly think there were many honest, extremely important attempts to do this, that, but I'm sorry to tell you, I don't think that you invented something that effectively can already serve as the model for the entire world. Some people like Tariq Ali almost claim this. Europe should look to Latin America. No. You cannot do this. I'm much more skeptical here, because it will be a long process of learning. And I'm here brutally realist. I praise Chavez, but I have friends in Venezuela, you know, who does something 
very evil, but I think it should be done. Whenever it was reported in the media there that ooh, a cooperative, cooperative took over that factory or there was a new commune organized there, he noted it in his diary and then a year later, you know, when the media no longer talked about it, he went there to look what happened, you no? Know? And to be brutal, the results are pretty sad, you know. Like, in most of the cases, either it went bankrupt or state had to intervene or whatever. So, uh, it's a long process. I have, I am open towards everyone. With all my critique, but I don't know enough about Brazil, what I see as important here is that not anything big that your Workers' Party government did, but nonetheless, you have one lesson, modest but very important today for the entire world. Often the global situation is presented to us as homogeneous in the sense that there is IMF, world market, you have to obey neoliberal rules or chaos and so on. No, you showed that even within the existing global system, there are many options. You can find your way. It's not as simple as we all obey the same rules. On the contrary, one of the interesting things today is that precisely states which follow in a too direct, stupid way, which take neoliberalism too seriously, suffer the consequences. Look at the countries which everyone would agree are capitalism in its most violent, precisely creative, destructive expansion. Malaysia, Singapore, South Korea, China. I'm sorry to tell you, but these are not neoliberal countries. These are all of them countries with an extremely strong regulatory function of the state. You cannot imagine how important the state is in coordinating, directing the big investments and so on and so on. So we should distinguish in neoliberalism between its ideology or market liberalism and what is effectively going on today, even in the United States. What neoliberalism? If in defense and all social service, whatever, not social services, they, they are diminishing, but like regulation of social life, economic and so on. I don't think that United States as a state apparatus was ever stronger than today. No, capitalists cheat here. Neoliberalism in this sense, you know, states should intervene less, leave the market to decide. It's a, it's a stupid ideology to screw up third world countries and to destroy them. They themselves don't really follow this. The United States quite ruthlessly support their own industries. They break all the neoliberal. Look how already Bush saved the American steel works by breaking all the neoliberal rules and supporting them uh, uh, with great uh, donations and so on and so on. So again, this is, I think, an important lesson from you and from some other countries that uh, there, neoliberalism is not one big homogeneous system where IMF rules, we have all to follow that dictate. 
No, no, no. The situation is much more complex, inconsistent, and there are things which can be done. Okay, I talk too much. Infelizmente, a gente vai precisar encerrar após essa última leva de questões. After this last series of questions, but we're going to deliver all these questions to Zizek later. And if he wishes, eu devo dizer que eu sou to give long answers to questions so that then I hear this beautiful line to which then I can hypocritically answer, oh, I'm so sad that I cannot go on. Because you know, maybe you know this joke of mine, but I mean it so seriously. I am for dialogue, but I'm a philosopher, I'm sorry. So my preferred dialogues are late Plato's dialogues. And you know how they look. One guy talks all the time, and the other guy says every 10 minutes something like, by Zeus, so it is Socrates, or whatever, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a totalitarian philosopher. And I'm quite serious here in philosophy. Don't bullshit me with dialogue. Tell me one philosophical dialogue which really worked in the sense that it was not a misunderstanding. It's clear, German, Aristotle totally misunderstood Plato, or later. Uh, it's clear that Fichte misunderstood Kant, Hegel misunderstood everyone, Marx misunderstood Hegel, and so on. I don't believe in dialogue. If dialogue works, means I read another philosopher, I don't get it, but happily my very misunderstanding is productive that I invent something new. Sorry, that's how it is. Então, para encerrar, uma última questão. One last question. Unfortunately, we have a problem of timing. If only the Revolutionary Act is able to transform reality, how can we think about the political practice settled on the democratic state? The, the big problem here, and I don't want to go into it now, is what do we mean by democracy? I mean, it's not self-evident. Me and my friend, Alain Badiou, we were for a long time fighting with this problem. Like, at some point, Badiou thought democracy is a term too much over-determined by whatever imperialist Western connotations, and it's better to drop it. But then he encountered this problem with what to replace it. For some time, Badiou played with the notion of justice, and he quickly came to see that it's even worse. I mean, everyone is for justice. What justice? Conservative corporatists are for justice, which means to everyone, he's her own place. It's this kind of a corporate justice and so on. So I think that I am ready to keep the term democracy on condition, nonetheless, that we accept something which is becoming clearer and clearer. That what we today call democracy in the institutional sense of multi-party democracy is not simply not strong and efficient enough to deal with ecological and other global problems that we are approaching. Now, there is no easy way to find something else. For example, a year ago I visited Bolivia and had a wonderful frank talk with Linera. He is, you know, 
theoretician like me, one of us, no? And he was very frank. He told me, yes, the idea of Bolivia, new Bolivia is to, to add to just these parliamentary mechanisms, local indigenous movements, and so on. But at the same time, and this is what I admired in Linera, she had no illusions about them. He told me immediately what new opportunities of corruption and so on emerge in this way. He told me that many of these local indigenous movements simply send one of their chiefs' representative to La Paz, where they get corrupted, and if they do anything at all, it is that they fight for their own group against the other group, like who will get the money for some project. So, yes, it's good, but there is no easy solution here. But that's the problem. I think that it's clear that parliamentary democracy, the way we have it now, will not do the job. Final words? Sorry? Final words? No. I'm too tired. I don't have big... I don't have a big final word. The only thing I can do, but it would be total bluff, is, you know, some pseudo-Zen Buddhist wisdom, like clap with one hand or whatever. Okay, I can be hypocritical and say, but this is a lie. I just wanted to make you start thinking. The final word should be yours. What will you do out of this when... You know, I hate intellectuals when they do these cheap rhetorical tricks. So I prefer to say nothing and very sincerely express my big gratitude for your patience. I'm really grateful to you for coming here. Thank you very much.